So Romans 4, we want to read from verse 9 uh, to the close of the chapter. It's a marvelous passage of Scripture. The whole chapter, of course, is tremendous. It really uh, brings together both chapter 3 and chapter 5. Paul's dealing with the doctrine of justification at this point, and he is writing here of the role of faith with regard to our justification. So, we'll read from verse number 9 of Romans chapter 4. And he says, Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, that is the Jew, or upon the uncircumcision also, the Gentile? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what He had promised, that is what God had promised, He was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to Him for righteousness. Now it was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Amen. And the Lord will bless the reading of these verses. And it's really the final few verses from 23 to 25 on which I want to focus your minds this evening as we come together to worship the Lord in the preaching of His own precious Word. Now, Romans chapter 4 is a pivotal chapter 
for various reasons. One of them being its emphasis on the cardinal truth that salvation and justification is by faith alone. No one could honestly read this chapter and not conclude that faith alone is the instrument by which sinners are saved and justified and come into possession of all the blessings and benefits that the gospel provides for the lost. Romans 4 is built around the spiritual experience of Abraham for the reason already mentioned, namely that sinners are justified by faith alone without religious and spiritual works of any kind. This chapter's emphasis is on the fact that Abraham's circumcision had nothing at all to do with his justification. And really the key verse in that regard is verse number 11. That verse states that Abraham was circumcised by and before all, or sorry, that Abraham was circumcised by and before Almighty God after he was justified, not before he was justified. The verse speaks clearly of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised. Therefore he possessed saving faith before he was circumcised. And Paul goes on to write that he that is Abraham might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised. Now those are powerful words. They clearly state that Abraham is the spiritual father, no matter who they are, Jew and Gentile both. He's the spiritual father of all those who possess saving faith, even though they have not observed some ritual, such as the ritual of circumcision. In the early church period, there was a fierce battle over the truth of justification by faith alone, as, of course, it still is. In those times, wherever the church existed, wherever the church of God was found, false teachers from among the Jews continually assaulted the minds of the Lord's people with the lie that circumcision is essential to salvation. And therefore, led by the Spirit of God, Paul very wisely appealed to the example of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation and the physical ancestor of those Jews who actually opposed the truth that sinners are justified by faith alone. And one of the vital elements that Paul incorporated into his teaching is that what he taught was divinely directed by Almighty God. Notice verse 24, and consider these words, if we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. If we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. The reference is to believing on or in God the Father who raised Christ from the dead. Furthermore, genuine faith believes on God the Father regarding His way of salvation, regarding His scheme for the justification of sinners. True faith believes all that. 
True faith rests in what God has revealed with regard to a man's justification. You see, many will say that they believe in God. They'll even say that we believe the gospel. But they utterly reject the terms that God has revealed unto men as to how sinners can be saved. Saving faith believes in God especially, may I say, with regard to the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice those words again in verse 24. We believe in Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Faith involves belief in God regarding His revealed will for the salvation of sinners and the fact that God resurrected Christ, we've been shown here, is utterly necessary to a man's justification, a sinner's salvation. In order for that man to be saved, there has to be belief in the resurrection. And again, there are many who will deny the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and yet continue to say that they're God's people, that they're His children, that they're going to heaven, whatever they say. My friend, it just cannot be because in these verses you find so clearly, as I've indicated to you, that when we believe on God as the one who directs these matters and reveals these matters, it's especially to do with the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And we will see more about that by the help of God this evening when we go through the various points that this message will contain. So the clear inference of what Paul teaches in this passage is that regarding the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has done something and declared something that is very, very special, something that we dare not miss. Otherwise, we cannot be saved. We will not be saved. It's really summed up in verse 25. It says, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Raised again. There's the resurrection of our Lord. And in this verse, as I say, it's the climax of the whole chapter, the climax of Paul's entire argument about how men are justified, the way of justification, the way of being right and righteous before God. As he comes to the climax, his focus is essentially on the issue of our sin and God's remedy for that sin as demonstrated by the Lord's resurrection from the dead. And tonight, therefore, I want you to note with me three issues that are shown to us in this verse and in the surrounding verses concerning our sin and God's way of salvation from that sin. That's the vital thing. What is God's way of salvation from sin? How can you be justified? How can you be reckoned right with God? How can you be pardoned? How can you be absolutely sure that the condemnation is gone and you are accepted by God and you're delivered from the curse, and you're reckoned righteous in His sight. That's the issue, men and women, 
and to those in this gathering who are not saved, who are not justified. May I just pause and ask you a question? Are you justified? But to those who are not, it is essential that you hear what God has to say. In words like these, as I say, three issues are raised by this text concerning God's way of salvation from our sin. First of all, there is condemnation suffered by Christ. Notice in verse 25, these words, the opening words, that Christ was delivered for our offenses. Christ was delivered for our offenses. And so the meaning there is very, very clear. The Lord was delivered for our offenses, and therefore the words ring with the thought and with the truth of His condemnation, the condemnation that was suffered by our Lord Jesus Christ. These words portray Christ under the image of being condemned and suffering condemnation. Now, what was the cause of his condemnation? Because that's what's in view here. He was delivered for our offenses. He was condemned. Well, the cause of his condemnation is very, very obvious. It was the offenses of men. Now, that word offense needs to be understood. It's a very interesting word. There are many words in the Bible that are synonyms for sin, and this is one of them. The word offense is here in the plural, our offenses. It's an interesting word. It's a vital word as we seek to determine the cause of the condemnation of our blessed Lord. One part of the original word means to fall. Therefore, in the word, there's a reminder of the fall of Adam and the fall of man in Adam. So get that. One part means to fall. The other part of the word actually means beside. And therefore the word literally means to fall beside. To fall beside. Now what is this? The thought, you see, is of deviation or departure from a standard. And the standard is the law of Almighty God. That standard of absolute perfection that is displayed in the law of God, displayed in the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments are the reflection and the revelation of God Himself in His own perfect, absolute holiness. Let me say to you tonight, this is what God requires of every human being, perfect obedience to His law. But you see, we've been shown here by this word offense or offenses that that standard of perfect obedience placed before us, we fail to reach that standard. We fall beside it. In other words, the standard is there. It stands unmovable. It stands without any thought of it ever being changed or reversed. And you and I fall beside it. Because we have broken that law. We come under our own personal condemnation. And therefore, this is the sense of the word. And here's the marvelous thing that the Lord Jesus Christ was delivered for our failure, for our 
for our sin, for our offenses, the violation of God's law, the deliberate rebellion and the willful wickedness and the transgression of God's rule over our lives. We fall beside all that. We do not reach the mark. That's what Paul says in chapter 3. We come short of the glory of God. And the word glory there is a direct reference to His holiness again reflected in the law, and we come short of that. Every human being, every one of us comes short of that. And my friend, the awful fact is that our offenses became the cause of the condemnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. See Him on the cross, and yea, see Him from the moment He's born. His lifelong sufferings, His rejection by men, all that He endured until finally He gets to Calvary and there we see the condemnation fall. We see the wrath of God descend and He's smitten and He is brought under the curse and He is left to hang there in that lonely, desolate place forsaken by the Father with the wrath of the law coming down and the curse of that law falling on his soul. And why is this? What is the cause of this? It is our offenses. But then not only is there the cause of the condemnation suffered by Christ, there's also the charge that these words bring out concerning that condemnation. The charge in his condemnation. Notice now this part of the verse number 25, delivered delivered for our offenses. The little word for is important. It literally means on account of. And so Christ was delivered on account of our offenses. He was therefore condemned for the sins, the offenses of men, and they were charged to Jesus Christ. And that brings in the whole thought of what this passage refers to when it uses the word imputed. I've often said to you from the pulpit, don't be scared of words like that. Don't just brush them aside and say, I can't understand that word. That word's too big for me to even begin to understand. No, it's not, my friend. The word imputed simply means to reckon to someone's account. And that's what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. Our offenses were actually reckoned to him and to his account. They were imputed to him, and therefore he was charged with them. They were laid to his account, and therefore they were placed against his name. And you have verse after verse after verse that makes that clear. The Lord, Isaiah 53, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, He hath made Him, that's Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. And the word made there, that verb made, is a legal word, it's a legal term, and it means once more that the Lord Jesus Christ had a charge placed upon His name and upon His soul. He was charged with our sins. God legally transferred the sins of men to the account of Christ. And he was charged with them. 
And that is why we say, that's why we must always keep in mind, Jesus Christ was not innocent when he died. He was guilty. He was guilty because the sins of men were then upon his account. Now, personally, he was innocent, but he became guilty. When he became the sin-bearer, when in that great covenant of grace and mercy and redemption, he undertook to save people from their sins. And that was from all eternity. And the Lord knew what was coming. The Lord knew he would be condemned. And he knew the cause of the condemnation, our offenses, our failure to keep the law perfectly. And he knew that they would all be charged to his account And therefore, when he was on the tree, he was guilty. Ah, my friend, there I see something of the depths of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. That he had sin charged to him that was not his own. He was held accountable for it. He was punished for it. It was laid upon him and that he would have been charged with the filthy, vile wickedness of ungodly men should fill our souls with amazement. And if there's one passage in the Bible that brings that out, that fact that filthy, vile sin was charged to Christ, that passage is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through to 11. If you will look with me and just listen to what I read there, it always causes my heart to tremble when I read these words. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, Paul says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. His heart's now to list certain sins and sinners. Uh, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's not an exhaustive list of sin. That doesn't mean that these are the only sins or sinners that will not be found in heaven. What he means is these are the gross sins of men. These are the awful, blatant sins of men. And the question might arise, can such people really ever be saved? But listen to me. Notice what it goes on to say in verse 11. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Notice that that obnoxious list of sin was charged to Jesus Christ How do we know? Because in verse 11, we are told that those have committed these sins and some of these people were in Corinth in those days 2,000 years ago. They had been drunkards. They had been sodomites. They had been adulterers and thieves and all the rest of it. But now they're washed and they're sanctified and they're justified. Why? Because their sins were charged to Christ. Christ died for those sins and those sinners. Christ paid for those sins. And therefore, those sins 
Let me put it this way. They had to be washed away because the Lord has suffered for them. And as we sang in that hymn, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Christians here tonight should have hearts that leap at such words, at such truths. And sinners here tonight should also leap with joy because maybe you think about your sins and you remember your past and you remember the pit into which you've fallen. And of course, all sins are obnoxious to God. But you may be tormented with the memory of your sins and you may wonder tonight, could I ever be saved? Could my sin ever be removed? Could I be washed whiter than the snow? Yes, my friend, there's no doubt about this. Because our Savior was condemned for that sin, such sin as is mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 6. It was the cause of his condemnation along with all other kinds of sin. It was charged to him. And therefore, it was borne by him and put away by him. And that is why you can be washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God can save you no matter who you are or what your sin might be, because of the charge in Christ's condemnation as well as the cause of that condemnation. But you know, we need to go back to Romans chapter 4 here and just look at one more word there with regard to the condemnation of Christ. The word delivered in verse 25, who was delivered for our offenses. That word delivered brings us to see the crisis in his condemnation. Because the word delivered means literally to give up, to hand over. It's a word of great depth and great meaning. It's actually the word that's translated betray. In Judas's betrayal of Jesus Christ, what did Judas do? When he betrayed the Lord, that's the meaning of the word. He gave the Lord up for 30 pieces of silver. That's the sense of the word. She's there in a negative sense, really. Judas gave Christ up. You know, men are still doing that. Giving the Lord up for sin. Whatever it might be, giving the Lord up for the world. Giving the Lord up for popularity. Giving the, the, the Lord up, crucifying Him afresh because they loved themselves and they loved their sin and they loved the world and therefore they give the Lord up. They deliver Him over, as it were, once again afresh. The Bible speaks of that. Men crucifying the Lord afresh. But the word is also used in a judicial sense. For example, in Mark 1, verse number 14, you read there of John the Baptist, and it says, John was put in prison. And the word put is the same word deliver. 
John was delivered up. He was handed over unjustly and unfairly into imprisonment and, of course, right on to his martyrdom. And so we, we, we can see from the Bible what the word actually means. It means to deliver up, deliver over, to hand over. But the most poignant places where you read of this word with regard to a person is with regard to Christ. Christ was handed over. Look with me at Matthew 27, at verse number 2 and verse number 26. It says in Matthew 27, verse 2, And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him. There it is. There's the deliverance of our Lord. He was delivered to Pontius Pilate the governor. And look at verse number 26 of this chapter. It says, Then released he, that's Pilate, he released Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate, oh, what sin you committed! You delivered the blessed Son of God in the place of a murderer like Barabbas, you delivered the Son of God over unto death. You gave Him up. There's the word used in that judicial way. And that's how it's used here in Romans 4.25. He was delivered. He was handed over. He was delivered up for our offenses. And my friend, perhaps the most striking verse is Romans 8.32. Do you know what it says? Romans 8.32 just look at that verse over a page or two and you will see it. And it says there, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. There is God the Father. And there's the crisis. That's what I mean by this point, this little sub-point. Here's the crisis in the Lord's condemnation. He came to that critical moment when the Father handed him over, gave him up to death. But my friend, that was not done in a harsh way, obviously. Remember that? The Father gave him up. The Father delivered his Son because the Father loved sinners and for their sakes he handed over his own dear son and Christ was condemned Christ was treated from that moment onwards until the work was finished treated by the father as a criminal forsaken by the father Oh, the depths of the love of Almighty God for wretches like you and me. I tell you, my dear friend, the older I get, and I'm getting old, but the older I get, when I get down before the Lord to pray, I cannot do anything else but cry to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know why you saved me. I should be in the depths of hell. And 
My friend, that's where every one of us should be. But here's the grace and the mercy and the love of our God and the condemnation of His own Son, handing Him over to punishment, to death, to suffering indescribable, that you and I might be saved. That brings me quickly then, not only have we looked at the condemnation suffered by Christ, but the satisfaction secured by Christ. It's here in verse 25, raised again for our justification. And those words do ring with the great fact of satisfaction uh, that has been made by Jesus Christ, raised again for or because of our justification. We should notice here that the resurrection of Christ and the justification of sinners are inseparably connected and for a very important reason. And what's that reason? The reason is this. The Lord's resurrection was the proof, or, and, and is the proof, that the Father was completely satisfied with the work that His Son had done. That's where I see the satisfaction in this verse. Raised again for our justification. The word for is the same word it means on account of. On account of our justification. What does this mean? Well, you get a hold of this. Throughout His perfect life, Jesus Christ was obeying the law's letter. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. In its fullness, He obeyed the law. When He came to die on the cross, what happened there? The life of perfection was then offered up in the atonement, in the sacrifice. And then what was the outcome? That perfect life that made the atonement secured the satisfaction of the Father with regard to those who will trust in Christ. You know, my dear friend, this is the very, very heart of the gospel. When Jesus Christ cried on the cross, John 19, 30, it is finished. When He made that cry and then died and gave up the ghost, it was the sealing of the whole transaction between Him and the Father Oh, the Father sent the Son, and the Son came gladly and voluntarily to save sinners like us. And Christ obeys the law in His life. Christ goes to the cross and sheds the blood, makes the atonement. And the impact of that atonement is upon God first of all. The, the divine being and on the divine nature. And God is satisfied completely and absolutely. And He rose from the dead, you see, to demonstrate this. This is why the resurrection was such a precious truth to the apostles and the disciples of that era. Go through the book of Acts and notice that the apostles are always preaching about the resurrection. Continually they use the word raised or resurrected. It's there. It's before them. They are thrilled with it. They have seen their Lord nailed to the tree. They have seen Him laid in the tomb. And then they saw Him after He rose. And they sat with Him, and they walked with Him, and they talked with Him. And their hearts are thrilled. You know why? Because the risen Christ is the answer to their guilt. 
the risen Christ is the message that God is satisfied, God is appeased, that all is done, and therefore Christ is alive to show that. Ah, my friend, that is why Christianity is the only religion on the face of the earth that presents a living and a resurrected Savior. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Confucius is dead. But Jesus Christ is alive. And by many infallible proofs, he showed that he was alive. Even the secular historians of that era have put it down in writing that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. It's a fully attested fact. And therefore, here you have the satisfaction secured by our Lord Jesus Christ, raised again for our justification. In verse 24, notice the last words there, if we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, literally that reads, from among the dead. The Lord was among the dead. He was laid in a tomb. He was really dead. His body was there in that tomb. He was among the dead, but from among the dead, God raised up His blessed Son to signify His satisfaction with the work of His Son. And that means the resurrection was God's act of judicial satisfaction concerning or related to the work that His Son had done. What does that mean for you and me? That God is satisfied with the work of Christ What does that mean for sinners like us? It means that you and I need to see that since God is satisfied, then you need to be satisfied in your soul, assured in your heart that this is what saves you. Ah, my friends, see that tonight. Sinners... Gladly embrace Christ. They, they, they joyfully receive Christ because they realize God is satisfied with His work. Therefore, I can be satisfied in my conscience, in my heart, my mind, my inner being, that that work saves me. That's where assurance of salvation comes from. The satisfaction that God has with Christ leads to the sinner's satisfaction. All will be well with my soul as I believe on Christ whom God raised from the dead. I may speak to you tonight in this gathering who are plagued with doubts. You're tossed to and fro with fear. Your sin comes up before you. As I said earlier about certain people, you may actually wonder, could God really forgive those sins of man? How can I be sure? How can I be satisfied, in other words, that He is going to save me or has saved me or 
forgiven me and cleansed me. How can I be satisfied with that? My friend, be satisfied in your soul tonight that as you rest in Christ, He's the one with whom God is satisfied. Therefore, He's satisfied with those who trust in Christ. He accepts them. For Christ's sake, He pardons them. He washes them. He gives to them eternal life. He justifies them. He declares them righteous. He delivers them from the curse. So have you been going through your life and through your days, maybe tossed to and fro in your mind and in your soul with this question, does God accept me? How can I know that He does? How can I be satisfied that all is well with my soul? That's what Paul is saying here. That brings me to my last thought here because I must just show you this. We've looked at the condemnation that was suffered by Christ and the satisfaction secured by Christ, but there's the imputation sealed by Christ. Verse 22, it says, Therefore it was imputed to him. Who's that? That's Abraham. This righteousness. It was imputed to him for righteousness. No, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe in him that raised up Jesus from the dead, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Here's where imputation is seen with regard to the sinner. What is this all about? Remember what the word means, to reckon to somebody's account. When Abraham believed what God revealed to him about the promised Redeemer, as you read away back in Genesis, God imputed to Abraham's account the resurrection of Christ. And that was at the time when Christ was not even born, thousands of years before he was born, before he did his work, before he went to the cross. But you see, so certain was it that he would be born and he would live the sinless life and die the atoning death when Abraham rested in what God revealed to him and promised him. Immediately God justified that man. He imputed the righteousness of the Savior yet to come to Abraham's account. And then Paul says in verse 24 here, 23 and 24, it wasn't for his sake alone, but for us also, verse 24, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe in him that raised up Jesus from the dead. See, sinner, there's, here's where faith comes in. Here's where faith plays its vital role. What are you to do saved. To have this perfect righteousness imputed, reckoned to your account, made over to your name, what are you to do? Paul says, if we believe. If by faith alone we rest in Christ, who was delivered for our offenses, who was raised again, because he had secured our justification, if you believe in him, you will have that perfect righteousness on your account before God. And let me tell you, sinner, 
you cannot afford not to have that righteousness as your own. When a man stands before God, as all men will, the only acceptance that they will have on that day of judgment is the perfect righteousness of Christ. No works, no supposed personal merit, nothing. As the old hymn says, this is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus, because you can't separate that righteousness from the shed blood. It was in the shedding of the blood that the work was finished and all was sealed. And therefore, I urge you this night to come to Jesus Christ and trust Him. Receive Him by faith. And God will give you freely and willingly and with delight He will give you the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. That imputation, that act of imputation has been sealed by Christ to those who believe on Him. And if you believe on Him, you can be absolutely sure God from a legal matter, a legal point of view, has placed against my account the perfect righteousness of His own Son. Irreversibly so. Eternally so. Therefore, trust Christ. And trust Him at this very moment and receive Him as He has set before you in the gospel. Could we bow together, please, before the Lord as we come to a close of this time tonight, and may the Lord's Word live on. I pray indeed that God, by His Spirit, will use it, that those in this meeting who are yet in their sin and lost, condemned and unrighteous, nothing but sin in your account before God, will obey the gospel and believe on the Son and receive His righteousness. Young man, young woman, is it well with you? Older person, how is it with you and God? Where do you stand? May you this night come at once to Christ, even now in the closing moments, cry for mercy, trust the Savior, the one condemned for sinners, the one who satisfied all of divine justice, the one who seals to sinners who believe that imputation of righteousness, and you'll have a perfect standing before God from this moment onwards. Now, if you speak with me or Mr. Stewart, please seek out that help. It'll be our joy to help you. And we pray that tonight God will work and God will move in His own powerful way. O God and Father, we pray that Thou wilt come and Thou wilt 
visit hearts in these closing moments and deal with souls in thy mercy. Draw sinners to thy Son, whom you raised from the dead, because thou art eternally satisfied with all that he has done. Hear us, O Lord. Have mercy, we pray, and answer prayer for thine own glory. And for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, and now may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be the portion of all of thy children, both this night and forevermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.